Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Todd, and um, I am not one of the leaders here at Renaissance. I'm just one of you who attends here on a regular basis, who happened to spend a good many years in ministry myself, and now I'm doing other things, but every once in a while I'll brush off the old preaching uh, whatever and uh, come on up and help folks out. Um, What I want to talk to you about today actually came to my mind back in May. Jeff was um, talking about an encounter that Jesus had with a young woman in the Bible. And um, I was sitting right over there, and the thought came to me, you know, if I ever get a chance to speak at Renaissance again, I want to talk about that one. Because it brought to mind some things from me that Jeff didn't talk about, and kind of uh, just add on to what he said, which in a way kind of proves the power of God's Word, is you can take one verse, you can take one story, and you can peel back layer after layer after layer. And that's exactly what I want to do this morning. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with you, turn there. Uh, Mark chapter 5, beginning at the 24th verse. As you're turning there, if you have your Bible, um, I'm going to pray. And um, get uh, everybody get ready. Turn on your Bible app, get it already. Here we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're opening your word. We're opening an app. We're opening our hearts, our minds, our spirits to you and to your message. Lord, I pray that uh, everyone in this place this morning will hear a message from you, whether I say it or not. And allow us to know in an amazing way exactly what it is you have for each one of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 5. Now when Jeff told this story, he used Luke's account of this story. Uh, But context is exactly the same. Jesus has just returned back to the area of Galilee from what would have then been known as kind of the ungodly area across the Sea of Galilee. He's just um, healed a man who was possessed by demons. If you remember the story, he cast the demons into the pigs, and the pigs ran down into the lake, and they were drowned. And now Jesus returns with the disciples back to the area of Galilee. Here's what it says. Mark chapter 5, beginning in the second half of verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, 
If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now maybe you hear that story and you say, oh well, so what? Good for her. But something we always have to remember whenever you look at the Bible is you have to understand that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Jewish rabbi who lived in a Jewish region among Jewish people, and he was calling people back to the ways of a Jewish God. For us to just grab a few lines out of Jesus' teaching and drop them into our culture without first entering into the world in which they first appear, it's kind of a dangerous thing. So I want to give you a little background as to exactly what's going on in this story. Look at verse 25. It said, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, to understand culturally what is going on in this story and the kind of life that this woman is living, we've got to go all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the Torah, one of the first five books of the Old Testament. We go back to the book of Leviticus. And there, God gives some rules, some laws. This is how you do things. This is Leviticus chapter 15, beginning at verse 25. Listen to these kind of strange words for us, but this was their reality. It says this, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has discharged beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe, clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But... If she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. That's a lot of information, isn't it? and even a little mm, squeamish about it. But here's what reality was for this woman. She was considered unclean everywhere that she went. She could touch no one because if she touched someone, they became unclean. No one could touch her because if they did, they became unclean. Unclean. So this woman is totally and completely isolated. She's unable to worship. She's unable to go to the synagogue or the temple. And in some circles, she would be required to say out loud as she traveled down the road, like the lepers did, unclean, unclean. 
And so for 12 years, she's isolated, she's empty, and the story says she's broke, and it's affected every area of her life. So she comes to Jesus, basically as a last resort. All of her efforts, all of her wisdom, all of her prayers, all of her bargaining with God, all of her money hasn't worked. And it's not much of a life. But not only that, look what Mark says in verse 26, going back to Mark 5. She said, and who, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. I can't help but think in a way, this is Mark's account. Jeff read from Luke's account. Anybody remember what Luke's um, occupation was? He was a doctor. I can't help but think this is a little bit of a jab from Mark back to Luke to say, yeah, see, all your wisdom, all these physicians, they couldn't heal her. Anybody know how she feels? Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now here's the question. What made her think that? What information was she acting upon that she comes up behind Jesus to touch his garment? Well, again, for that information, we need to back up. And we need to see what it was that she knew that maybe we don't know. It's from the book of Numbers. Again, back to the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. In Numbers chapter 15, it says this. God is speaking to Moses, and he says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments through their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So from that, there was a Jewish tradition of what men in those days would wear. And maybe you've been wondering since I stood up here, what in the world is this? Well, this is exactly what the book of Numbers is talking about. This is, as some would call, a Jewish prayer shawl. In Hebrew, it would be called a tallit. If you notice on the corners of the tallit is this, and it's called a kanaf. A kanaf is actually the Hebrew word for wings. And then running through the kanaf are these strings or these tassels. And this is called a tzitzi. 
And every Jewish man in the days of Jesus would have had one of these. Jesus would have had one of these. It would have been wrapped around him, maybe sometimes pulled over his head, and it would have been sticking out either over or underneath his clothing. Now, why did God give them this command to do this? Well, number one, what did it say? To remember the commands of the Lord. And then secondly, to do what? Not just to know them and remember them, but to actually obey them. Why? It said to avoid going after the lust of their own hearts, their own eyes. And so to avoid that, God gave them a visual reminder, a tallit, a kanaf, a tzitzi. It's kind of, if you will, kind of like a speed limit sign that says you can go this fast, but not that fast. It's kind of like, did you ever tie a string on your finger so you would remember something? Well, this is God's string around the finger for them in those days. Why? Why did he give them this reminder? Because he wants to ruin their fun? Because he wants to create little Jewish robots? No, he wants to remind them, my way, this way, is the very best way to live. Give you an example. In um, probably 25, 26 years ago, I was able to take a trip to Israel myself. And one of the things that I learned, fascinating, we had a Jewish um, tour guide, told us all kinds of background and information. And this is one of the things he said. He said, in Israel today, if you are a Jewish man, Jewish woman, if you are married, during a woman's menstrual cycle, a husband cannot touch his wife. And a wife cannot touch her husband the entire time. Now, we would say that's kind of odd, but think about it. For however many days, six, seven, eight days, no huggy, no kissy, no cuddles, no touch the entire time. And you know what that would then mean? By the time it's over, you would what? You would long for that touch. I can't wait to be touched by him. I can't wait to be touched by her. See, that's a really good way to live, isn't it? So the kanaf, the tzitzi, is a reminder to live the way God had created them to live. And the Jewish people are very visual. They like to have symbols and signs so they can remember things. And for instance, if you see on this tzitzi, it's on this is five knots. I know it's hard to see. There's five knots. One, two, three, four, five. They remembered, used those five knots to remember the five books of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In between the five knots are four spaces. And the four spaces stand for the four letters of God's name, Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. A constant reminder of God's ways and God's best way to live. So, here we are. We have to remember. Jesus was a Torah-observing rabbi. And he would have worn a tallit with the attached tzitzi to the kanaf. And the other word for the kanaf is a wing. 
but why would this woman come up behind him and touch this? What's the other bit of information that she understood that maybe we don't? Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. It says this, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its what? Wings. Healing in its knaf. Healings in the tzitzi. You shall go out and leap like calves from the stall. So it was very well known among the Jewish people of Jesus' day that when Messiah come, there'd be healing power in his wings, in his kanaf, in the tzitzi. Go back to Mark 5. Let's pick up the story again. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, his what? His talit, the kanaf, the tzitzi. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So she comes up from behind. Why from behind? Well, she's a social, spiritual outcast. She's a misfit, and she's embarrassed, and she's afraid of the crowd and what they, how they might treat her. But she risks it all. She risks the shame and the rejection from the crowd to do what? To get to Jesus. She, if you will, anyone who are 12-step fans, she did what? She did step two. She came to believe that a power greater than herself could restore her, could restore her health, her sanity. Look at verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. In those days, you heard it before, when something unclean touched something clean, what happened? It became unclean. What happened here? Something unclean touched something clean, and she became what? Clean. That's the power of Jesus. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Do you think Jesus knew who touched him? Absolutely. He knew who touched him. But he's up to something here. Look at verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why do you think Jesus probes so deeply after this woman? I think it's because he wanted her to tell the truth. For him? <laughs> no, he knew the truth. He wanted her to tell the truth for herself, to face her fear, to face her shame, and in the face of God, 
tell the truth. Let me say that again. To face her fear, to face her shame, and in the face of God, to tell the truth. Let's just let that one soak in for a minute, wherever it needs to. Just let it soak in. At that moment, it's kind of like there's nobody else in the room but her and Jesus. At that moment, it's as if she's the only person in the whole world. And I want you to know something. That's exactly how Jesus treats all of us. See, I think sometimes we don't have a problem with the God so loved the world part. It's the but does God love me part that we oftentimes have trouble with. If you don't know this, I want you to hear this. God loves each and every one of us as if we were the only one to love. Or to put it another way, you have no idea how much he loves you. I think that day, that woman began to understand that. Look at verse 34. Mark kind of saves the best for last. And he said to her, daughter, it's only one of two times Jesus ever called anyone daughter. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus says something here. He only said, again, to one other time. He says those three words, go in peace. Now remember, the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in Greek. But they would have spoken the words that Jesus said. He would have either spoken in Hebrew or in Aramaic. And the word in Hebrew for the word peace, anyone know? Shalom. It's the Hebrew word for complete. See, shalom, peace, is not just the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of war. It's so much deeper than that. Shalom is the presence of the goodness of God. Shalom is to be complete. Shalom is to lack nothing. Jewish um, commentator David Stern, this is how he defines uh, shalom. He says it's tranquility, safety, well-being, contentment, comfort, wholeness, and integrity. Another theologian named Cornelius Plantica, he puts it this way, and this is my favorite. He said, shalom is the way things ought to be. I love that. Shalom is the way things ought to be. So when Jesus says to this woman, go in peace, go in shalom, he is placing a blessing not just on her physical well-being, on all of her not just her body that needed to be healed, not just her soul that believed, but all of her. Why? Because for Jesus, 
And quite honestly, here is something that I think the American church, and maybe the Christian church worldwide, but I'm in America, so I know what, how it's been here. I think we've missed for the last hundred years or so. And it goes something like this. Jesus doesn't just want to save our souls so we can go to heaven when we die. He wants to save all of you. He wants to save every part of your being. I mean, he not only wants our souls to be saved, he wants our actions to be saved, to reflect the peace, the shalom, the contentment, the well-being, the tranquility that is ours through this Messiah named Jesus. Think of it in this sense. In, in one way, salvation is kind of a legal transaction, if you think about it. We are sinful and we are guilty of sin, right? And because of our sin, because of our guilt, the judge, also known as God, has to deal with our sin. Why? Because he's holy. And any act of sin goes against who he is. He has to deal with it. Enter Jesus. Jesus comes into the world. He dies on a cross for my sin and for yours in our place. Jesus gets what we deserved. And so because of Jesus and our faith in him, we now have peace with God. Amen? Amen. But for Jesus, I think it's far more than a legal exchange. To be saved, if you will, is to freely receive and be at peace with God. Yes? But I believe Jesus then desires that we enter into a new way of living that represents the peace of God. Yes, Jesus gave me the peace with God. But I think it goes even further that we can demonstrate the peace of God. Salvation is much more than just a promised ticket to heaven when we die. It's that. It is that. But it is so much more. Salvation then becomes living more and more and more at peace with God. And that's a process that will go on forever. See, it's one thing to be forgiven and certain of heaven. And I hope you are. But it's quite another to become more and more the person God originally created you to be. We could put it this way. We could say the cross is about what Jesus has done for us. Jesus' life and death satisfied God's need for purity, for perfection. But the cross, listen, is also about what Jesus came to do in us. See, God isn't just interested in covering our sin. He wants to make us into the people we were originally created to be. God wants to make us into the people and restore not just our souls, but the whole world. How? How does he restore the world? Through radicals like us who do extravagant things like loving other people forgiving other people, 
People who are generous, who are aware of God's presence, who take breaks, who live for today, who tell the truth, who throw great parties and trust God and live at peace and harmony with God now and forever. That's shalom. And that's what God wants for all of us and the whole world. See, the purpose of the cross wasn't just forgiveness, but it was to increase the shalom, the peace, the restoration of the whole world. Paul writes to his much-loved congregation in Colossae. He said these words, watch this. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Next. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself what? Most things, just a few, just you, no. To reconcile to himself what? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making what? Peace, shalom, by the blood of his cross. What did Jesus pray? Or what did Jesus say to his disciples when they said, Lord, how should we pray? In the middle of that, he said what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth. On earth. As it is in heaven. Folks, there's a word for that, and it's called shalom. We get a very narrow view when we think the cross is just about me, to save me, to save Americans, to have my sins forgiven. Because it's possible, think about this, it's possible to be saved and quite miserable. It is. One of my favorite authors, Tim Hansel, he put it this way, and this is something you probably will remember from this message. It's a great quote. He said this. He said, God has given us such immense freedom that he will allow us to be as miserable as we choose to be. And all God's people said, amen. He's given us such immense freedom, he will allow us to be as miserable as we choose to be. It's possible to be saved and miserable. It's possible to be saved and not be a whole, peace-filled, life-giving person. It is possible to be saved, and yet massive areas of our lives remain unaffected. It's possible to be saved and still worry, be stingy, be un uncaring, and have no peace whatsoever. It it's possible to be saved and the cross have done something for us, but maybe never do anything in us. God's desire, Jesus' desire, is that it affect every part of our lives. Here's what I think Jesus offered the woman that day. She believed Jesus was who he said he was. But Jesus' interaction with her didn't stop there. He offered her something more than healing. He offered her peace. He offered her shalom. And let me ask, do you think this, this woman's life was ever the same after this interaction? No. 
I think it affected every area of her life. Just as that flow affected her entire life, because of this encounter with Jesus, it affected her whole life and gave her a whole new life. He offered her the peace with God because she believed. He offered her the peace of God as she went away. See, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another to be filled with shalom. It's one thing to be forgiven and to have the rest of your life changed as you become more and more and more the person God created you to be. And peace is a major byproduct of that kind of life. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Just some practical examples. Have you ever told a lie? Anyone ever told a lie? Um, Any peace in that? Once you've told a lie, is there any peace in that at all? No. There's peace in what? Telling the truth. Not just when it's convenient, not just when it's easy, but always telling the truth and leaving the consequences of that truth to God. You know what that is? That's shalom. That's peace. How many of you have a secret right now? A secret that nobody knows. How many of you live in the constant fear of that secret being revealed? How peaceful is that? A genuine, a byproduct of a genuine relationship with Jesus is his desire that we live the best possible way to have the most possible shalom, well-being, tranquility, contentment that's possible. If you're a generous person, you know the peace that comes from knowing that all of your resources ultimately come from God. There's a lot of peace in that. But on the other hand, if you're stingy with God, with others, you won't have the peace that knows that God is in charge of all of your finances and experience the thrill of then being generous and seeing God bless someone through you. Here's another example. You'll get this one. If you're going down the road and you're speeding and you see a police officer alongside the road, do you have any peace? (laughs) No. What do you have? You have fear, guilt, remorse, constantly looking back in the rearview mirror. Is he coming? Is he coming? Is he coming? But here's the thing. Newsflash, folks. You drive the speed limit. When you see a police officer, you know what you have? Absolute peace. Sometimes we'll be driving. I'll be driving the speed limit, doing very well, and there'll be somebody behind me. You know, and they'll be uh, trying to get past, trying to get past or whatever. And I will say to my wife, Jennifer, I said, he doesn't like my peace. (laughs) See, driving the speed limit is a better way to drive. There's a lot more peace in it. Driving the speed limit, it's a better way to live. If you worry, if you worry, do you have peace? 
No. You cloud today with tomorrow's concerns. But look what Paul said to the Philippian church. He put it this way. He said, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen next? And the what? And the peace. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, will blow your mind. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think one of the first first time I ever spoke at Renaissance was downstairs and I confessed to everyone that when my wife and I and daughter, when, we, when I originally stepped away from ministry, we looked for a church, we looked for a church, we looked for a church, and after a while we just kind of gave up. And yes, I have to confess, I was a pastor and I didn't church for some time but you know what there was always something a little nagging in me you know what I didn't have peace not because you have to go to church but I think it's because we are designed by God to take a weekly Sabbath, a weekly break where we realign and we recharge with God and then we kind of recommit to do life with a group of people. Here's the thing. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to. God will still love you. And if your trust is in Jesus, you still go to heaven when you die. But you know what you're doing? You're robbing yourself of the peace that you get when you do. You don't have to give when you go to church. God will still love you. you still go to heaven when you die. But you're just robbing yourself of the peace that comes from trusting God with your finances. You don't have to drive the speed limit. God will still love you if you speed and you'll still go to heaven when you die. But you are robbing yourself of the peace that comes when you do. You don't have to forgive those who have offended you. God will still love you. You'll still go to heaven when you die. But you are robbing yourself of the peace that comes from knowing that you have offered to others in small measure what God has offered to you in massive amounts. You can still worry if you want to. God will still love you. you still go to heaven when you die. He's given you the freedom to be as miserable as you choose to be. But you're robbing yourself of the peace that comes from trusting God in every area of your life. See, I think too often we want Jesus to forgive us so we can go to heaven when we die. But beyond that, if we're honest, sometimes we really just wish he'd leave us alone. And just keep living the same old peaceless way. And you know what? Well, first of all, he will never leave you alone. And he will always love you. But when we do that, 
we become the one who is robbing ourselves of the peace, the thrill, the excitement, the joy, the contentment, the absolute heart-pounding, jaw-dropping peace that comes when you see His way really is the best way to live. Jesus bought the peace with part with his blood. And it's yours today by faith. But I think we choose the peace of part as we day by day, we love, we forgive, we're generous, we see God in everything, we take breaks, live for today, throw great parties, and display and live in this amazing peace, this shalom. When we do that, I think we find ourselves more in tune, more in sync with how God created the world and how God created us to live. So we could put it this way. Shalom then is lining yourself up with the way things really are. God wants to make us the kind of people we were created to be and not restore just us, but I think through us, the whole world. How? As they see this extraordinary peace of God in us and the way we do things. You might hear somebody someday say, well, if your Jesus is so big, well then, Where's the world peace? You know where they see world peace? You know where it starts? In you and in me. One life, one day, one decision at a time. The people of Israel in Moses' day, they developed this interesting custom. When they would dismiss a crowd, they would the priest would stand up and he would raise his hands over the crowd and he would say something like this. You've heard these words before. Josh says them a lot around here. He dismisses the crowd. The priest dismissed the crowd and he said what? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you what? Shalom. It's the way things ought to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of peace who loves each one of us just the way we are. But you have also set before us a path that leads to peace for us and the whole world. Lord, I pray that each day, each decision will be a path that leads to peace, a path that leads to shalom, the way things ought to be. May it be so for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. 
So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.